Thank you. Thank you all very much. How's everybody this morning? We have a, what is it, a school here or? No? Okay, well, welcome anyway. Uh, I got to tell you, it's really, really great to be here. You know, it's funny, I hadn't been back in South Carolina, I think the last time was about four or five years ago, and then I was here this past December. I'm here today, and next week I think I'll be in Charleston to do a big men's uh, ministry, so I'm here three times. I'm wondering why God has got me here, but anyway, hopefully it's a good reason, but you know, I love coming here. People are always so wonderful. This church, for those of you who are visiting, I have to tell you, Pastor's been wonderful. Pastor Larry, his wife, uh, Karen, have been so gracious and courteous to me and my wife. My wife is here, so we really appreciate that. If you're visiting, this is a good church. If you want to make it your home, I strongly uh, suggest it. Offer you can't refuse. You know how that goes, right? But really, uh, really great to be here, so thank you. Unfortunately, um, I have to leave right after. Uh, there's only one flight back to California. It leaves at 2.15. Uh, we had some time to mingle in between services. I apologize for that traffic jam. I went a little bit over my time, but uh, hopefully everybody was blessed as a result. But um, uh, really, thank you very much. Some of the guys, I think, are coming to the men's group, uh, the men's thing next, uh, next Wednesday, I think the 15th, so maybe I'll see you all again. But you know, every time I come up and speak, my prayer is always the same. Realizing, honestly, that I'm just a messenger here this morning. I'm not here to try to turn anybody into a Christian. I don't ever impose my faith on anybody. I'm here merely just to share what the Lord has done in my life. And as Christians, that's what we're obligated to do. Mark 16, 15, go out and preach, share the gospel with all of creation. So I'm here merely just to share. And I realize that if I'm here this morning, I'm not here by accident. It takes a lot to bring a speaker in. Schedules have to match up, traveling the whole bit. It takes a lot. So I'm not here by accident. Now, neither are any of you. Now, I guarantee, if I asked some of the guys to raise their hand, you didn't come here to hear a gospel message. Figure, hey, the Sopranos is off the air, let me go see what the real mob guy is all about, right? That's okay. Whatever God uses to get you in the door, that's okay. But you're not here by accident. And I realize that if you're here this morning, God wants to plant a seed in your heart. And my prayer is, Lord, let me be effective, let me be passionate enough to deliver this message so that you can reach out and touch the heart you want to touch in here this morning. Now, it might be one person, might be 10, might be 100, might be everybody in the room. I don't know, and I don't worry about that. That's God's deal. But I just want to be effective because people, I take ministry very seriously. God has been amazing to me in my life, and whenever I'm here, I really try to give it my all, and that's why I go over my time a little bit at times. But I know that seed is going to be planted in your hearts today. How do I know that? God doesn't waste opportunities when he has his people together. It might impact one person. It happened this morning, it happens in every service. Somebody's gonna come up to me at the book table, I'm gonna say, Michael, I didn't even know you were gonna be here, but I needed to be here, I needed to hear that message. Okay, the Holy Spirit really touched my heart. It happens every time. And some of you are gonna walk out of here, you're gonna say, ah, pretty good story, but I heard something like that before. You're gonna go about your business. But that seed will be planted. It might take 20 years before God nourishes and waters that seed. But I can tell you this, people, once God's got a hold of your heart, he will never let you go. So I always say, you may as well make it, make it easy on yourself. Start today because God's going to get you, no doubt about it. And before I start, I want you to take a real good look at me, and I mean this uh, in all sincerity. I'm probably the most blessed, most fortunate person that's ever going to walk up on this stage and talk to you about anything. And the reason I say that is because had I been left up to my own to do what I wanted to do in my life, follow the path that I was on, I'd either be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. And quite honestly, that's what I deserve. 
That's what I earned for myself, having spent over 25 years on the street every day, and I mean every day, in violation of both God's laws and the laws of man. And I did it knowingly and willingly, people. Nobody pushed me into this life. Whatever I did, I did with full consciousness. And I'm going to be honest with you. There were times in that life that I was very uncomfortable with the things that I did. But you know what? I did them anyway. I was a knowing and willing sinner. And God has made it crystal clear to me over the past 25 years that if he didn't have a different plan and a purpose for my life, I wouldn't be here this morning. He's made it very, very clear. And you know what? He's got a plan and a purpose for every one of your lives. When you get a little bit older, you start to realize, I know I didn't come into this life to be just a good mob guy, to be a good speaker. I came here because God had a particular plan and a purpose for my life like he does for every one of you. You don't have to have some sensational mob story. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to sing in the worship group. Your purpose might be to bring one person to the Lord. But remember, all of heaven rejoices when one person comes into the kingdom. And if that's your purpose, then you've fulfilled it. We're on equal ground. And I believe my purpose is to be an encouragement to all of you. I travel this world quite a bit, people. I mean it. I'm all over the world. I've been in every city in America, and I've been all over the world. God has given me that blessing to be able to preach the word all over the world. Now, I don't know any of you in here, but I've met with a lot of people, and I guarantee some of you came in here this morning with a heavy heart. You're struggling about something. There's some challenge in your life. We all go through that, and if you're not going through it today, it probably was yesterday. If it wasn't yesterday, today, God forbid, it could be tomorrow. That's just life doesn't matter if you're a Christian, the best person in the world. We still have to go through struggles and challenges in our life. Remember this, people. God gave us a promise, but he didn't promise us heaven on earth. He promised us heaven in heaven, but he promised that he would have our backs all the way through. And I found that to be true in my life. And I want to be an encouragement to you because, people, I want to tell you this. Some of you are thinking, you know what? I'm so far gone from God's grace. He can never use me. I've been a bust out all my life. I haven't taken care of my family. I don't do the right thing. I've had an addiction problem. I haven't done anything right in my life. How is God going to use me? How is he going to forgive me? Well, I want to tell you this. If God can forgive me, and I really believe he has, and there's no arrogance in that, people. I struggled mightily with forgiveness. You don't do what I did for 25 years, get on your knees, say a prayer, and think it's all over. No, I struggled mightily with forgiveness. But the more I got to understand my Bible, the more I got to realize that the entire message of the Bible, the entire message of the cross is about what? God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's love. That's the entire message of the Bible and the cross. And if we sincerely confess our sins, what's the key word there? Sincerely. Because remember this, people, I'd be honest with you, I was pretty gone on the street. I could probably pull a scam over some of your eyes here. You think, wow, what a man of God. Walk out of here and be the biggest hypocrite in the world until I get caught. Because people like that always get caught. But I know this. Can't pull a scam on God. He knows our hearts. And if we sincerely confess our sins and we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are forgiven. Hands down, no matter what we have done in our life, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We are forgiven. That's it. And if God can forgive me, who at one point in time was the worst person in the room, no doubt about it, and not only forgive me, but give me my life, give me my freedom, a wife that I adore, children that I love, a ministry I never asked for. If you would have said to me 20 years ago, I'd be up speech, preaching the word, I would have said, you're out of your mind. 
I could never see the name Michael Francis next to ministry. It didn't make sense to me. But the more I started to speak to people, and the more I saw the Holy Spirit having an impact, the more I said, you know what, God, maybe this is what you want from me. And once I committed to that, God has taken this ministry, okay, to where he's brought it today. I don't take credit for that because I resisted this. So if he can forgive me, then he can and he will forgive you. And that's the message this morning, people. I want to encourage you. I want you to walk out of here a little bit differently than when you walked in. Because like I said, I take this very seriously. That's why I'm here. No other reason. I'm not here to entertain you. But I am here to tell you a story. And it is a mob story. But please don't focus in on the mob stuff. You want to see me on the mob? I'm all over YouTube. I got, I don't know, 40, 50 million views. I'm on Netflix. You can watch The Godfather, Goodfellas. They're making a movie about my life. I just signed on to do a TV series. I'll be all over the place. Too much, as a matter of fact, I think. But not, as, not too much if God comes through every single time, because that's what it's all about. I don't do anything unless it complements my ministry. That's my commitment to the Lord. Okay, but don't focus on that. Focus on how God took a very dark time in my life and brought me to where I am today. And for those of you that are struggling, I want you to know this. I had a real problem with this at one point in time, really early on in my ministry. And I went to a friend of mine. I said, hey, bro, he's a brother in Christ. I said, bro, you know, people are asking me to speak. and give, You know, who's going to listen to me with my past? I said, if I was in the audience, I wouldn't listen to me. Why would anybody listen to me? And he looked at me, and I thought he was really going to console me. And he looked at me, and he says, Francis, stop being a wimp. I said, hey, now, take it easy. Don't forget who you're talking to here. You know, I got a little unselfish. I said, what do you mean by that? I'm coming here, you know, to, to, to get some confidence, and you talk to me like that? He said, yeah. I said, why? He said, because you're insulting me right now. I said, insulting you? What does this have to do with you? He said, I'll tell you what it has to do with me. My Lord and Savior died a horrible death. He was crucified. He was spat at. He was an innocent man brought to his death. He was hung on a cross. He did it for the forgiveness of all sins, and you have the nerve to stand in front of me and tell me it wasn't good enough for you? He said, don't ever insult me like that. Whoa. Well, he said it like that. I kind of got it. He said to me, Michael, are you sorry for your sins? I said, yeah, I believe I am. I feel it in my heart. I, I believe so. He said, well, if you're sorry for your sins, God has forgiven you. He said, go on and do what you need to do. He said, I'm going to give you one lesson, and don't ever forget this. He said, don't allow the enemy to remind you of what our gracious God has already forgotten. Now go do your work. Remember that. And for those of you that are struggling with something, remember this. What the enemy meant for bad in your life, God will turn around and use for his glory. What the enemy meant for bad when I entered that mob life and spent 25 years in it, God has turned it around and used it for his glory by bringing people into the church. By letting them hear how you can get out of a bad situation in your life. Remember that. So don't ever think you're too far gone or you're too bad for God's grace to extend to you. My dad, Sonny Francis, was the underboss of the Colombo family back in the 1960s, one of the five New York Mafia La Cosa Nostra families. By the way, there is no mafia in America. Mafia exists in Italy. In America, it's called La Cosa Nostra. It means this thing of ours. There are similar organizations in many ways, quite different in others. If you take an oath to become a made member in, in, in the mafia in Italy, you're not automatically made here and vice versa. When people from the mafia would come here, we were courteous to them. Um, respectful, obviously, but we didn't share our secrets. Two separate organizations. And the underboss is a very powerful position. In that life, you have a boss, an underboss, a capo regime, or captain, and a soldier. I'm sure many of you have seen The Godfather. There's a position called uh, consigliere. Robert Duvall played that role. 
brilliantly, I might add, but in The Godfather, it was fictional. Because in order to be a sworn made member of that life and take the oath, and you do take an oath, your father must be Italian. Mom can be of another descent, but your dad must be Italian. And my dad, in terms of law enforcement investigation, media attention, very high profile, always under investigation, always a major target of law enforcement, kind of like the John Gotti of his day. I'm sure many of you have heard of John. And I grew up a lot differently, I assume, than everybody in this room. I grew up hating the police. I hated them. I hated the government. I hated law enforcement. And not because my dad taught me that way. He was smart. He taught me to respect the law. But it was really because of what I witnessed as a kid growing up. Law enforcement tactics, techniques against organized crime were very different back then than they are today. Today, everything is very covert. Got a lot of undercover informants on the street, a lot of high-tech surveillance equipment. Today, you can be under investigation, not really know about it until it's too late. Back in my day, when you were under investigation, they wanted you to know about it. And for a period of about 10 years, when I was a kid growing up, Brooklyn, later on Long Island, my dad was under investigation from seven or eight different agencies. FBI, IRS, Queen Detective, Brooklyn DA, you name it, they were on him. And every one of these agencies had a car parked around my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I was one of seven kids. Whenever we as a family would leave to go anywhere, we had a parade of law enforcement vehicles following us. Everybody knew when we were coming into town. And I witnessed some things that were kind of unpleasant, rough detail. Every once in a while, the agents got out of hand, did some things that weren't too cool. I remember one time I'm playing ball in the street. I'm like 10 years old. We lived on kind of an incline. So a kid throws a ball, it goes over my head, and it rolls down the street to where uh, two agents were sitting in the car. As the ball approached them, one agent gets out of the car. He's a big burly guy, right? And he stops the ball with his foot. So I go up to him and I say, hey, sir, can I have my ball back? And he looks at me, he pulls his suit jacket aside, he's got a gun in there, and he said, this is for your old man one day. Kind of scary when you're 10 years old. I had a lot of run-ins with them, a lot of stuff like that. My dad was my hero. I loved my dad. I idolized him. So I always saw them as the enemy, people trying to hurt him, harass my dad, harass my family. So I didn't like them very much back then. But I want to make this very clear right now, especially now with all you young people sitting in here this morning. I do not feel that way anymore. I finally realized in my life that they're the good guys and we were the bad guys, at least most of the time. Look, any walk of life, anybody can get out of hand. But you know what, people? It's amazing how God can not only transform a heart, and I think you all know he can do that, but how he can transform a mind, how this whole distorted sense of view I had growing up where good was bad and bad was good. God's been able to fix that. Today, some of my dearest friends are in law enforcement all over this country, now all over the world. And not because I share information. I don't do that. I didn't cooperate. I didn't put people in prison. We're just friends, many of us brothers and sisters in Christ. And I really learned through this experience that we really are all one in the kingdom of God. And I give a very, very strong anti-crime message to all of our young people all over this country. And I want you to listen up. All you young ones in here, listen up. I spent a lot of time in prison with a lot of young kids coming into the system, 20, 21 years old, mandatory minimum drug sentences. They got involved with drugs got slapped with a 15 or 20 year sentence. In the federal system, there's no more parole. You get 20, you're doing 85%, 17 and a half. Very, very hard for a young person to do that kind of time, come out and be a productive member of society. Very, very hard. And I took a, you know, I have a heart for children. I got seven kids of my own. And I took a heart to some of these kids and I would try to counsel them. I said, hey, you don't get away with criminal conduct in America anymore. Forget about it. Law enforcement is too sophisticated. They got too many weapons, too many informants on the street. You go that route, you're going down. And they all had the same story. You could write the same script. Broken home. 
No father figure in the house. Mom trying to do her best. Maybe she had her own problems. What do they do? They gravitate to the local gangbanger, local drug dealer. Before you know it, they're doing their bidding, end up in prison, or God forbid, something worse. And I would tell them, like I said, straight out, this doesn't work. And one of the greatest messages I can give all you young people, it applies to all of us, but especially to you young people, is this. Listen up. In this world today, you are who you hang out with. If you hang with the wrong crowd, you're going to be known to be the wrong type of person, and of course they're going to influence you. You know, when I came to Christ, I didn't get a lobotomy. I don't forget the 20-some-odd years I put on the street. I say this. I get off a plane sometimes in New York. Okay, somebody looks at me the wrong way. They have that kind of look about them. I'm ready to go. It's like 20 years of ministry went out the street, and I'm the mob guy again. It happens like this. We must surround ourselves with the right people that hold us accountable. I've been so blessed to have a wife that holds me accountable. My kids hold me accountable. My church, friends of mine, when I'm having a bad day, things are going through my head. I get on the phone with a brother in Christ and say, hey, bro, we got to pray or something today. I got some stuff going on inside of me. You don't become perfect when you become a Christian. You still got to live in the, in the real world. You become better, but you still have temptation. You must surround yourself with the right people because you are who you hang out with. Remember that. And don't ever let anybody mislead you the wrong way. You'll always be strong enough to say, no, not for me. I'm done with that. I don't want to go near that. Very, very important. But back then it was different. I loved my dad. I didn't care what people said about him, what I read in the newspaper. Great father, great husband to my mother. He didn't want this life for me. Wanted me to go to school, be a doctor. Son, stay off the street, get an education. That's what it's all about. And I was on that road until he got in some real trouble. Things started to change for me. And uh, I always like to honor my dad. You know, I tell this little story about him uh, just to give him uh, just some honor because I loved him. You know, when I was a kid in school, I played all three sports, kind of an athlete. My dad would never miss a game, no matter what he was doing. Mob business, legit business. I'd be playing ball, he'd show up, right? Baseball was really my sport. This happens so often, I'll repeat it. I'd be playing ball. I'd be up to bat normally. I'd be looking for my dad. You know, all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, here he comes. He pulls up in a big black Cadillac or a black Lincoln. That's the car he drove. For those of you my age, remember those 1960 Cadillacs? Their fin was half the size of this room. You couldn't miss them, right? So he'd pull up. He'd always come late, so he'd never go into the parking lot. He always pulled right up to the field. He gets out of the car. He's dressed sharp in a suit. My dad never dressed any other way. He'd always have five or six guys with him. He'd never travel alone. So they get out of the car. They walk onto the field. They go into the stands. I'm up to bat. I kid you not. The umpire took one look at that crew. He would never call strike three on me when he saw my dad. I used to say, hey, Pop, you're very good for my batting average. I played football. Nobody would tackle me when he was in the stands. Good to have a dad in the mob when you play sports. Trust me, it really works. He was great. He got in some real trouble back in the 60s. He was indicted in the state of New York three times, very serious crimes, twice for grand larceny, once for a homicide. He actually went to trial three times, and he was acquitted in all three of those cases. Then in 1966, they indicted my dad in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. After a lengthy trial, he was convicted in 1967. They sentenced him to 50, 50 years in prison. Longest sentence for a bank robbery conspiracy case ever given up to that point. 1970, my dad loses all his appeals. They ship him off to Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas to do his time. I was a pre-med student, Hofstra University. I was gonna be a doctor, playing ball there. When my dad went in, he was 50 when he went in. Figured he had 50 on top of that. My dad would never come out of prison alive. I figured he would die in prison. Just as, as an aside, today, my dad um, is 102 years old. He'll be 103 on February 6th, okay? 
Um, he did 40 years on that 50. He was in and out five times, each time on a parole violation, and each time uh, for associating with another felon, somebody alleged to be an organized crime. You can't do that when you're on federal parole. When I was on parole, I had 526 people on my separation list. Feds actually give you a list of people you can't associate with. Some of them on a list I never heard of. I didn't know who they were. Some of them were dead. They don't even let you go to the cemetery and meet with anybody. <laughs> Feds are tough, let me tell you. My dad had a problem with that. He'd come out, he thought he was being covert, he'd meet with people, they'd surveil him, they locked him up five times. About seven, eight years ago, he was in a penitentiary in Milan, Michigan, on his fifth violation. I went to see him, I said, hey dad, come on man, you're 95 years old, this is getting ridiculous, you gotta stop meeting with people. He looked at me, I'll never forget, he said, son, what do you want me to do? I don't know anybody that's not a felon. He said, even you're a felon. I said, I know that, Dad. I said, but you're allowed to see me. It took me two years to get off his list. Feds are tough, let me tell you, but you know, the sad thing about my dad, he gets out on that last violation, and within two years, he's indicted on another major case, goes to trial, gets convicted. They gave him another eight years. Uh, my dad was released from prison in June of 2017 at the age of 100. He was the oldest inmate in the system in the country at that point in time. Today, at 103, uh, he's the oldest living mob guy in America, for sure, quite possibly in the whole world. I don't think anybody's lasted that long, but uh, he's, he's kind of a legend. You can look him up, Sonny Francis. But, um, you know, he's in a, uh, uh, a rehab center, a veterans hospital in Queens, New York. He's got phlebitis in his legs, but for 103, he's pretty lucid. You know, he gets things until about 5 o'clock. I don't know if you ever heard sundown syndrome. Did you ever hear of that? Let me tell you, it's real. At 5 o'clock, he and I had taken the family back. That's it. Mike, you're going to be the boss. I'm going to be the underboss. And he goes through the whole thing like people are still around and all that. And I got to humor him until the next morning, and then he forgets it all. So, but, uh, but I'll tell you this. I want you to pray for my dad. You know, I try to minister to him, but you know what it is when you become a Christian, you try to minister to your family. It's like, all right, when you get out of this hypnotic spell you're under, let me know. But um, I want you to pray for him. And I got to say this now. God bless the women. Women are prayer warriors. Women coming up to me all the time, Michael, you know, I've been praying for my husband for 20 years, can't get him into church, praying for my dad. You know, I want to buy your book. He loves the mob stuff. Hey, who knows what God's going to use to bring somebody to the Lord. But women are prayer warriors. I can tell you this. There's no doubt in my mind that it was a woman that prayed me to where I am today. Prayer warrior. And uh, don't ever give up on prayer, people. What's one of the greatest stories in the Bible that sometimes we overlook? The thief on the cross. Let me set it up for you. There's Jesus lying in the middle of two thieves that day. One of them kind of mocks our Lord. Hey, you're the king of the Jews. Help yourself and help us. Okay? But the other one, no. He saw something in our Lord's heart. I don't think he knew Jesus that day. Okay? He wasn't at the Sermon of the Mount. And if he was, he wasn't paying attention too well. That's for sure. But he saw something in our Lord's heart. And what did he say to him? He said, Lord, remember me today in your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? He didn't say, wait a second, I'm innocent, you're guilty, you've got to pay the price. No. He saw sincerity in that man's heart, and he said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. In one second, he wiped out a lifetime of sin. What more do you need to know? So don't ever give up on prayer. And my dad is probably going to be a deathbed experience, but please pray for him. His name is Sonny. I want him up there. He'll drive me crazy, but that's okay. I want him up there. So... Joe Colombo, the boss of my family, he kind of takes me under my wing. I start to meet a lot of my dad's friends. Mike, what are you doing going to school? If you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. Because people, I want to tell you this. I went to jail for a crime I was guilty of. I pled guilty, did my time. 
My dad did a lot of bad things in his life, no doubt. So did I. But that particular crime that he did all that time for, he was innocent of. My dad was no bank robber. He was framed. I'll take that to my grave. I investigated that case thoroughly. We spoke to every witness that testified against him. They recanted their testimony, proved they lied at the trial. We gave them lie detector tests, proved they lied at the trial. We can never get the conviction overturned. My dad did 40 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But what does that tell you? It's what I tell our young people. The system is not always fair. You put that bullseye on your back, you put that target on your back, one day you're gonna go down. You're gonna go down. What's the best way to avoid it? Stay away from it. You know, people, life is tough enough when everything is good. You're doing the right thing, everything is good, and you get hit from left and right for something you don't know. God forbid, who knows? When you do the wrong things and you put more baggage on your shoulders to carry around, this life gets so tough. You know how many men I visit sometimes that say to me, Michael, I'm 50, 60 years old. I don't know where my life went. But consistently, they were doing the wrong things in their life. Catches up with you people. You've got to do the right thing. I'm very, very uh, motivated by that. I don't want to go to school anymore. I want to help my dad get out of prison. I go visit him in Leavenworth Penitentiary. Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. He was upset. He didn't want that for me. He argued with me a little bit. I was a pretty headstrong kid. He knew my mind was made up. He said, okay, son. Threw up his hands. He said, but if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. He said, go home. Somebody's going to be in touch with you. Do whatever you're told. That's it. He didn't give me any instruction. You know, one thing I admired about my dad, many things, but this in particular, he never brought what was going on in the outside world into the house. He never talked about it. In the house, we were a family. Everything I knew about my dad, I knew from observation. I knew from the media, from the mouth of others, never from him. He would never even talk about it. That's a secret life. You're not supposed to talk about the life with anybody outside of it. And if my dad was anything, he's a good soldier. Wouldn't do it, not even with me, his own son. He just knew I had it in me. Go home and do what you're told. And you know what? I didn't question my dad. I didn't say, wait a second, dad. I know there's something different about you, but you never explained it to me. You know, I didn't question him. I love my dad so much I had blind faith in what he asked me to do. Now, did you ever hear that Christians are supposed to have blind faith? Don't question God. Don't ever question the Bible. It's God. He's going to get upset with you. Well, you know what? Because of this incident, when I came to Christ, I didn't have blind faith. I challenged God. I challenged him. I said, hey, God, wait a second. I love my father more than anything. I followed him blindly into this life, and look where it got me, and it got me in a very bad place. I'll get to that. You take it a step further in my life, I took a blood oath. I surrendered my life to La Cosa Nostra. People, you come into this life, you got to give it all up, body, mind, and soul, or you don't survive. It's a whole subculture from everything else that exists, our own rules, our own policies, our own way of thinking. If you're not in it all the way, you don't survive. I said, God, I did this twice in my life. I can't do this again. If you really are God, if this Bible is written by men but inspired by you, the blueprint for our life, that's how I look at the Bible. It's God's word in our life. Blueprint for our life. And you take it a step further. You say, hey, the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. No gray area, black and white, Jesus or nothing. I said, God, you're asking a lot of me. And you know, some people say there's arrogance in that. As Christians, we're arrogant by saying the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. We're not arrogant in saying that. That's what we believe, and we're obligated to share it. Let me ask you all this. If we were in a burning building, and we were up on the 27th floor, and there were five doorways, but only one would take you out, 
Should I look at you and say, hey, take your pick? Or should I say, no, that's the door to go out. Well, you want me to tell you that at that point. Well, that's what we do as Christians. We say the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Now, it's up to you to accept him or not. We can't force that on you, but we're telling you what we know to be true. There's no arrogance in that. I challenge God. And you know what? He didn't get upset with me. Because I said to him, God, you got to show me the evidence. And people, I know a little bit about evidence. I've been to trial five times. I've had two federal racketeering cases, one brought on by Rudy Giuliani when he was the U.S. attorney in Manhattan. I've been to more grand juries than there are this section of the room, more parole hearings than there are this section, five trials of my own, four of my dads, so many of my associates and men that I had around me at that point in time. I've been up in front of the Supreme Court on constitutional issues in my dad's case. I know the law. Evidence has played a major part of my life. I think in terms of evidence. I'm kind of a cynical guy. You grow up on the street, you get cynical. I always say, you're not selling me the Brooklyn Bridge when I'm paying attention. Show me the evidence. And I want to tell you this, and I'm speaking especially to the men. Because I tell this to the men, men say to me, oh, show me. And then they don't want to look. Got to do the work. Paul tells us why. Test everything and hold on to the good. Test everything and hold on to the good. You got to do the work. God didn't make us robots. He wants us to come to him freely. But how are you going to come to him, love him, and believe him if you don't know who he is? You got to do the work. And I'll tell you this. I found out there is more evidence, more rock-solid evidence to prove that the Bible is God's word and that Jesus is my risen Savior, because I don't know about any of you. Okay? I'm not worshiping anybody that's dead and buried in a tomb. I, long, long ago, I learned long ago, dead people don't help us. There's more evidence to prove that than there is anything else that exists in the world. And if you do nothing when you leave here, you got to do the work, people. Because let me tell you the bad news. The bad news is there is a hell. And the good news, there is a heaven. And none of us have to go the other way. Not one of us. But you got to do the work. you got to believe. I left there that day. A captain and a family picked me up, took me to see the boss. Joe Colombo had been shot and seriously wounded. New boss took over. His name was Tom DeBella. Tom has passed on now. I sat with Tom. He said, Mike, I got a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of our life. Is that true? I said, yes. He said, here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family, the Colombo family. That means if your mother is sick and she's dying and you're at her bedside, we call you to service. You leave your mother. You come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. When and if we feel you deserve this privilege, this honor to become a member, we'll let you know. I was 22 years old. I was in kind of like a pledge period where I had to do anything and everything I was told to do to prove myself worthy. Could have been something very menial, a lot of discipline in that life, a lot of authority, a lot of alleged respect. You had a meeting at 8 o'clock. You weren't there at 7.30. You were late. You can never be late in that life. Drive the boss to a meeting, sit in the car for three, four, five hours. I'm not kidding. God forbid you leave, go to the restroom, get a newspaper. He comes out, you're not there, you're in trouble. I know, I did that once, paid the price. A lot of stuff like that. And I want to be very honest with you this morning because you really need to understand where God has brought me in my life. And I don't say this for you, because, for me rather, because this is difficult for me. It took me a while before I was able to talk like this. I say this for all of you that are struggling, that I think you're too far gone. If you believe God has done a work in my life, what are you worried about? That life at times, people, is very violent. And if you're part of the life, you're part of the violence. And I saw my share over 25 years. 
And if anybody's telling you differently, they're either not being honest with you or they weren't a made man in that life, and I think you know what I mean. After about two years, I, I proved myself worthy. It was Halloween night, 1975, when I was called into a room with five other gentlemen. That night, we all took an oath and became sworn made members of the Colombo family. And I took that oath very seriously back then. That's a serious life. I take it seriously this morning, even though I don't consider myself a member of that life anymore. You come into the life, you don't sign a contract. There's no retirement age. What I know about that life is in my heart, my mind, not easily forgotten. You know what they say? They say when you leave that life, either leave in a coffin or you join the government and enter a witness protection program. Obviously, I've done neither. It was a dimly lit room late at night. The six of us walked in individually, four seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration, underboss consigliere to his left and right, and all the captains, copper regimes were alongside of them. We had about 15 in our family at that point. Walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand, cut my finger with a knife right here. <clears throat> Some blood fell on the floor. This is a blood oath. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar card, put it on my hands and lit it aflame. Didn't hurt. Burnt quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said something to me that night I don't recall hearing ever in my life before. And I grew up as a Catholic. Catholic school from kindergarten right through high school. I was an altar boy the whole bit. But for me, for some reason, Catholicism was like a subject in school. I didn't understand that this whole life was about a relationship with Jesus. And I'm not blaming Catholics. I have a lot of Catholic friends. It just didn't work for me. And when he said this to me, it was the first time I recall hearing it. He said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a, knife, into a new life, into La Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life. Betray your brothers, and you will die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Do you accept? And I said, yes, I do. First time I was born again, I was born into a criminal lifestyle where every day of my life I lived in violation of God's laws and the laws of man. I have to mention this. I was in um, Beth Israel Temple in, in uh, New Jersey. Pastor Jonathan Kahn, it was a Jew that now uh, serves the Lord. Tremendous biblical scholar. I love Jonathan. He spoke for the president the whole bit. I had finished speaking. When I was done, I walked down the center aisle. And as I'm walking down, a guy comes up to me with this horrid look on his face. I said, man, who is this guy? And he says, Michael, I got to talk to you. And he puts his hands on my shoulders. And he said, I saw a vision. I have to tell you this. He says, when you repeated that oath, I saw a vision of Satan standing behind you with his hands on your shoulders, looking up at the sky and saying, I'll show you what born again is. I got one of yours. Gave me the chills. I had said this so many times, but I never thought of it that way. But you know what it made me understand? Okay, the enemy, I believe, has two functions here on earth. First, separate us from God. You're not good enough. You're too sinful. God will never forgive you. Who are you kidding? You can never get in his grace. Separate us from God. He has so many ways to do that. Second, mock our God. Remember when Jesus was fasting in the desert, 40 days, 40 nights? The enemy appeared to him three times. Third time, what did he do? He told him to get on his knees. Jesus, get on your knees and praise me. He showed him a vision of this beautiful city. He said, praise me. All of this will be yours. I would bet everything I have, he knew Jesus wasn't going for that. He was just mocking our God. Now, how do we defeat that? How do we defend that? Paul tells us, put on the armor of the Holy Spirit. The more you get into your Bible, the more you know your Lord, the more you can recognize that every sinful attack on you is coming from the enemy. The light goes off, you realize it, and you do your best to resist it. And you know what? Sometimes you won't like I don't. 
We're not perfect when we become Christians. People make you believe that every time a Christian makes a mistake, we get mocked. No other faith, just us. Where in the Bible does it say we're going to be perfect? Nowhere. It says just the opposite. But you know what? When you come to Christ, you will be better. And when you do sin, you get convicted. And you get on your knees and you say, God, help me. Don't let me do this again. And you pray and you do become better. You know why? Because it's not about you at that point. It's about Jesus transforming you from the inside out. I don't claim any credit from what I did. He transforms you from the inside out so that you have to become better. You know, when I came to Christ, I got to tell you this, I did it a little differently than most of you in here. From the time I was five years old, my father drummed it in my head. You got to be a man's man. That's the standard in life you have to live up to. When you walk down the street, you got to hold your head high. You got to have dignity. You got to have respect. You treat women the right way. Treat children the right way. You got to have respect. You got to be a man's man. I heard it from the time I was five years old. When I got into the life, the same thing. We're men of honor. We're men of respect. Men's men. And I wanted to emulate the guys that I thought were men's men. My father, Sonny Francis, had a lot of respect for him. Tony Salerno, head of the Genovese family, Fat Tony, they called him, good friend of mine. I really respected the way he was. I wanted to emulate these guys. So when I came to Jesus, realizing that he was a man, I wanted to see what kind of guy he was because honestly, growing up as a Catholic, seeing Jesus hanging on the cross, I had this kind of wimpy view of Jesus. I'm ashamed to say it now, but that's the truth. I said, what kind of guy is he? So I studied the New Testament. I separated his deity from his manhood, and I wanted to see Jesus of Nazareth, what kind of guy he really was. And you know what? I was blown away with Jesus of Nazareth. There was no greater man that ever walked the face of the earth. He was the only true man's man that ever walked the face of the earth. There's no shame in following Jesus, his wisdom, his courage, his strength, the way he taught. The way he treated children and women, everything about him was perfect. So here's what I thought at that time. I said, hey, what am I trying to emulate my dad, a fat Tony? I want to emulate Jesus because if I do, I'm going to become a better husband to my, to my wife. I'll be a better father to my children. If I'm a boss, I'm going to treat my employees the right way. If I'm an employee, I'm going to give my boss an honest day's work. Everybody in the community around me who comes in contact with me is going to benefit me, and I'm going to benefit throughout my life by emulating the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth. And when I die, if he's not the savior of the world, well, I'm dead anyway, so what did I have to lose? Emulating Jesus is a win-win situation. That applies to the women, too. Nothing to lose, but I do know he's the savior of the world, so for that, I have all of eternity to gain. Remember that. Guys come up to me all the time and say, hey, you got a hero in life? Who is it? Celebrity, God forbid, sports figure, maybe a pastor, somebody you really admire? Bring everything you got about him, every piece of information. Let's sit down at the table. I'm going to have the New Testament. Let's go line for line, word for word, page for page. I guarantee your guy won't stack up to mine. And you know what? I win it every time. Jesus, that's the model. So... <clears throat> You come into that life, you come in as a soldier. I was motivated to do two things. One, get my dad out of prison. I did get him out after 10 years on parole. Told you what happened after that. Next, I wanted to make money. My dad said in this life, you make money, it translates to power, not unlike the real world. You saw the DVD, no need to go into that. I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. I was very aggressive on the street. I brought some new things into the family they hadn't done before. Went on to make a very significant amount of money. 1980. 
Most of my family, Carmine Persico, recently died in prison. He was convicted on the mob commission case by Giuliani, given a 100-year sentence. He came to me in 1980, Francis, Michael, you're doing a great job. I'm going to make you a cop regime, captain. And that's it. Boss says you're a captain, that's it. And that's a very powerful position. And from 1980 until about 95, I operated in that capacity. And I want to tell you where I was in 1984, when I believe God started to make this transition in my life. 84. I'm a captain in a family, quite honestly, they were grooming me to be either the boss or the underboss. The boss had a son. He and I came in. We were at the same age, and our fathers were grooming us to take over the family. I became a major target of law enforcement, told you about that, indicted five times, went to trial five times, beat every case. I beat Giuliani in 86. I was the first major mob guy he indicted under the RICO statute. I was the lead defendant. I had 15 co-defendants. Day of my arraignment, he gives me a million-dollar bail. We're in the courtroom. He comes up to me. He says, Francis, I convict you on this case. I'm giving you double what your father got. You're going to get 100 years. That's the kind of time they were giving mob guys in the 80s. Look it up. I remember standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with Rudy and saying, hey, Rudy, bring it on. I beat you guys four times already. Let's go for round five. And I got to tell you this, that's about the dumbest thing you could ever do. <laughs> you, you don't antagonize them anymore. They don't need any more incentive to come after you. But I was young and arrogant. But fortunately, after a seven-month trial in federal court in Manhattan, I was acquitted in that case. Some of my co-defendants were convicted. They got 30 years. I lose that case. He gives me at least 50. I'm not here today. So I beat all of those cases, quite honestly. I had a lot of things going on, both legitimately and illegitimately. I was in the gambling business, the whole bit. But the biggest scheme that I had is I created a scheme to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. The height of my operation, I had 350 gas stations I either owned or operated. I had 18 companies licensed to collect tax on every gallon of gasoline. The height of my operation, I had all the Russians brought in with me from Brighton Beach. Uh, we were selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month, taking down 30, 40 cents a gallon. Do the math, it was a lot of money. At one point in time, we were bringing in close to $8 million a week. I had my own jet plane. I had my own helicopter. I had a house in Florida, a house in New York, a house in Marina del Rey, California. I had 300 guys under me, under, ready to do anything I tell them to do. At the age of 29, top of the world, ma. Beat all of these cases, going to be the boss of a major family. Had all the money I ever needed, top of the world. Now, did I believe in God back then? Sure I did. People, it makes sense to believe in God. I have a hard time with evolution. I can't believe that some little speck of dust in a universe that never existed one day blew up into some big bang. And what happened at that point? What did it blow up into? Everything. And they say, God is a stretch. <laughs> Intelligent design makes sense. I don't understand how God always was, always will be, always remains the same. Some things are just too beyond our, our human capacity to understand. Maybe when we get to heaven, God will reveal that. Maybe not. He doesn't have to. He's God. But I had no relationship with God. He did his thing. I did mine. And then something happened. Among many things I was doing back then, I was making movies. I had a production company in L.A. Smokey Robinson was a dear friend. Comes to me with a screenplay for a breakdance movie. A lot of dance music, a lot of dance, a lot of rap music. But that's when you can listen to rap music on the radio. Not like, forget about this stuff today. But back then it was cool. We had the Sugar Hill Gang, Run DMC, Fat Boys, Curtis Blow. Old school rap. I like that. I say, hey, Smokey, I'll make the movie. Let's film it in Florida. We film it in Florida. I had a house down there. I love the warm weather. And I bring cast and crew from L.A. to work in the film, 50 professional dancers. Got them staying in a hotel in South Florida, Mar Marina Bay Club, I think. I don't know if it's there anymore. And uh, we had just finished pre-production. We were going to start principal photography, the heavy work on a Monday. Sunday, I throw a party for everybody in the back of the hotel, right? Have a good time. Get them ready to do the heavy work. 
Guys, you'll appreciate this beautiful day in Florida. Sun is shining. I'm sitting in the back by the pool, minding my own business, talking to a few guys. All of a sudden, out of the water comes this gorgeous 20-year-old girl. I saw her. I'm not kidding. Everything went in slow. It was like a Pepsi commercial, right? <laughs> wow. Who is this girl? I saw her. She shook her head. The wall, you know, you had me at hello. She had me at like one shake of her head. I said, man, who is this girl? She looked like a dancer to me. Had kind of a dancer's body. Choreographer was sitting near the pool. His name was Jeff. I said, Jeff, come here. Who is that girl? One of your dancers, he said, yeah. I said, bring her over. I want to meet her. Big shot producer. She wanted to meet me. Why not? So she comes over. Her name is Camille. I introduced myself to her. Camille, I'm Michael. I'm your producer. I want to get to know you better. Let me take you to lunch. She said, sure. Sweet, polite, gorgeous, right? We set a time and a place. I got one of these restaurants set up on one of the major hotels. I figured she'd come up there, sweep her off her feet. She's mine. That was my, uh, I was kind of arrogant back there, I'll be honest with you. And uh, I'm up there half an hour, 45 minutes. She stood me up. She never showed up. Stood up a mob guy, imagine that, but she didn't know who I was. I see her on the set the next day. I said, hey, what happened? We had a date. You didn't show up. If you could, you're going to say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I, you know, she didn't do that. She gave me one of those looks, ladies. You know it, like, did you really expect me to come? So she kind of put me off a little bit. I said, well, what happened? She said, well, I was busy. I was rehearsing. I said, okay, can we try it again? She said, sure, no problem. You know, we said another time. I go, she stood me up again. Now, she did this to me five times. Now, I'm telling you, if she was here, she rolls her eyes. She said, would you stop exaggerating? It wasn't five times. Hey, guys, we know when we're offended. I was the offended part. I wasn't used to rejection. Trust me, it was five times. You know, I got five daughters, you know, and I tell them all the time, listen, I'm old school. You play hard to get. Guy takes you to lunch, he pays. Guy's going to go out on a date, he picks you up. My daughter wants to drive. No, you don't drive to meet him. He picks you up. I am old school in that way. And they look at me, oh, daddy, come on. You know, you're old-fashioned. You wear your pants too short. You still listen to Frank Sinatra. Believe me, they don't, they're not impressed with the mob stuff. I'm just dad. Give me gas for a car, for, you know, uh, uh, whatever. Take out the trash. They don't care. But I get even with them. They bring their boyfriends over to the house. Say, hey, come here, you. I'm not from else. <laughs> I'm not from L.A., I'm from Brooklyn. Let me tell you how you're going to treat my daughter. And I scared the hell out of them right off the bat. You know, I told them to. They say to me, Dad, please don't come to our school and talk. I said, well, you behave yourself, and I, and I won't come. Hey, guys, let me give you a tip. You're not Italian. You've got teenage daughters. Put a vowel at the end of your name. Speak with a Brooklyn accent. They think you're all mobbed up. It really works. Trust me. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, she don't want to have anything to do with me. One night, we're having a cast meeting. It's 9.30 at night. She's coming out of the meeting. She's upset. I said, great. Tailor made for me. I got to fire somebody, get rid of somebody. I want to be her hero. She finally starts to talk to me a little bit. She tells me she's from Anaheim, California. She used to dance at Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm. She had no clue what she was getting involved with, with me. And she tells me, Michael, I need to go home. I said, why? She said, my mom and dad are upset, 3,000 miles away from home. I've never been far away. Uh, they're kind of strict. She says, you know, I'm 20 years old. And she says, honestly, there's some things happening on this movie set I don't really agree with. It was a rough, you know, kind of wild set. Music, dance, young kids. Got a little out of hand. But I'm saying to myself, well, you're a dancer. What's the big deal? But then I start to realize we used to go to some of the after-hours clubs, you know, party a little bit at night. She would never show up. One or two friends, rehearsal, back to the room. That was it. So I said, what's the problem? And I forget how she put it. She said, well, uh, I'm a believer, or I'm a girl of faith, or I'm a Christian. I said, hey, I'm Catholic. We got something in common. Let's talk, right? <laughs> Anything to get to know her better. I got to make a long story short. I fell very much in love with this young woman. She's now my wife of 35 years. And there's no doubt, people, that she was the catalyst that God used to lead me to the Lord. The reason I say catalyst, somebody can lead you to the Lord. Nobody can make you accept him. That's very personal. That's between you and God. 
We get through the movie. She kind of know each other a little bit. We wrap the movie. Mike, you got to come home and meet my mother. She's very close to her mother. I say, hey, no problem. I'm great with moms. Let's go. We jump on a plane. We go meet her mom. Her mom, Irma, was the most godly woman I ever met in my life. You meet Irma for two minutes, your name goes into her prayer book. She had a prayer book like a telephone book. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And the name's in the book. She didn't even know your name. Boy on a street corner with one shoe. Delivery boy that came to the house. She thought you needed prayer. She sits on her porch and she prays. I am telling you, that woman prayed me to where I am today. No doubt about it. So here's what's happening. I'm falling in love with this young girl. And I'm saying, you know what? My life is a direct contradiction to whatever these two women believe. Now, I wasn't buying into it, but I respected their faith. I said, how is this going to work? People, I want you to understand something. When I met her, I told you where I was. When I met her, I'm at the top of my game. I am mob guy all the way. I am my father's son. I grew up in this. I'm going to be the boss. This is who I was. It was never on my radar screen ever to walk away from that life. You don't do that. But for some reason, my love for this young girl is becoming more powerful than this lifelong blonde, this love, this adoration I had for my dad. Becoming more powerful than this blood oath that I took to La Cosa Nostra. How do you explain that? And she wasn't the first beautiful woman I met in my life, but there was something about her. And now, 35 years later, the way my life has become, it's, it's no, no mystery. That difference was God. God put her in my life. Because he had a different plan and a purpose for me. I always stop at this point and I ask this. Who did God put in your life? Who dragged you into this church today? Who's been praying for you every day? You know, people, God doesn't take a day off. He doesn't go to the next church, next town, next family. He's always trying to get our attention. Maybe through the people we know. Maybe through a great joy in our life. Maybe through something that was unpleasant. He's always trying to get our attention. The question is, are we paying attention? So here's the deal. I want this girl in my life. But I knew I had to make some changes. So I had a plan. I always had a plan. After I beat the, Ju the, the government in the Giuliani case, they really wanted a conviction on me. That was my fifth victory. So I had leverage over the government. It's great to have leverage over the government because they wanted me. They were bringing down another case on me for this whole gasoline, another racketeering case. They indict me on it. I tell my lawyer, I have a plan. I'm going to take a plea. I'll do a couple of years in prison. I'll give them back some money. I'll marry Camille. I'll move out to the West Coast. When I get out of prison, I'll have parole and probation. I can use that as an excuse not to meet up with the guys in New York. Maybe after 10 or 12 years, they'll forget about me. That was my plan. It had nothing to do with God, people. I've been given so many accolades. Michael, what an amazing thing. You walked away from that life. Nobody's ever done that before. I don't deserve that. I walked away for selfish reasons. I betrayed my oath for selfish reasons. I wanted a girl, and I couldn't have both. So I had a plan. But you know what happens to us sometimes, people? We walk parallel to God. What do I mean by that? I married Camille, but I married her for me. I didn't marry her for God. And I left that life, but I did that for me. I didn't do that for God, but I believe I was walking down that path. God is looking down and said, oh, you married that girl, good Christian girl. I put her in your life. You don't get it. One day you will. Oh, you left that life. Great, Mike. I got a plan for you, but can't do anything when you're running around the streets of Brooklyn committing crimes. Right now, my son, you're walking parallel to me, but one day we're going to intersect. And you know what you're going to realize? None of this was your plan. This was my plan for your life. How many of you walking parallel to God? If you're not walking with him and you're in this church and you're hearing this message, you're walking parallel to him. It's only a matter of time before you intersect. He will not let you go. Great, 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 great uh, 
uh, verse in the Bible. Jesus was asked, Lord, what is your mission here on earth? You know what his response was? Very telling. Not to lose one soul for my father. And you know what his track record is? A million percent. Not going to lose you people. Matter of time. Confident of that. So, I take a plea. 10-year prison sentence, $15 million restitution, $5 million in forfeitures. I gave up the plane, the helicopter, the whole bit. I married Camille in July of 1985. I go away in December of 1985. We're married four months. And I want to stop right now and tell you this. I'm not the story here. My wife is the story. That girl didn't have a clue. She didn't know anything about the mob. Out in L.A., we call them the Mickey Mouse knob. She, she saw the Godfather once. That was it. And you know what? My wife is Mexican, Mexican-American. Back in, in New York, we didn't have any Mex. I never even ate a burrito before I met my wife. That's how, <laughs> that's how out of left field he hit us. She's the story. She will tell you, I love my husband. But if God wasn't in the foundation of our marriage, I wouldn't have made it through. It was too tough, people. I did eight very hard years in prison. Why? Because it became public. I was walking away from that life. All hell broke loose on me. My father practically disowned me. Boss of my family, immediate contract on my life. Feds came into the prison. Francis, you're a dead man anyway. We've got it all from our informants. It's all over the street. Cooperate with us. We'll put you in a program. We'll uh, preserve your life and that of your families. I didn't want to do that, people. I wasn't looking to hurt anybody. I wasn't mad at anybody. I just wanted out of the life. They didn't take no for an answer. They gave me a very hard time in prison. Shipped me to all these prisons in the country. Put me on diesel therapy, uh, you know, trying to break me down. It's the worst time part of doing time when you can't get settled in anywhere. My wife would come and visit me. They'd ship me out the night before. It was a, she put five tough years in on that. I'm out on parole. We get through that. I'm out on parole for 13 months. Worst 13 months of my life. Big shop mob guy made all this money on the street. I couldn't get anything going in L.A. I was like a fish out of water. I couldn't put a house in my name, no utilities. People were out to get me. We had to move a couple of times. It was very, very difficult. Every time I walked out the door, she was afraid I wasn't coming home. They put it in her head that I was going to get killed. She had a beeper. I mean, I had a beeper. We didn't have cell phones. She used to beat me. I had to run to a payphone. Honey, I'm okay. It was tough on her. After 13 months, like a fool, and I mean a fool, I fall into a trap, violate my parole. They pick me up walking out of a bank in L.A., Francis, we're done with you. I'll be honest, I was playing a game with them, making think I was going to cooperate, trying to, you know, make settle things with the government, but then at the end of the day, I wouldn't do it. And they knew that, and they were very upset with me. They violate my parole. They tell me they're going to indict me on another big racketeering case. They, uh, walking out of the bank, they drove my car away, confiscated my car, went to the house with a search warrant. We had two little babies. They took every penny that we had. She didn't have enough money to buy milk for the kids. Destroyed. They said, we don't want you to cooperate. We're done with you. She had a breakdown on me at that point. She didn't come and see me for seven or eight weeks. She was just, thank God for her mother and her grandmother that held her up and our church at the time, honestly. And I'm so thankful for God. I love this woman. He's kept her in my life. And uh, they throw me in a six-by-eight cell in MDC, uh, the federal jail out in uh, California, ready to transport me back to Brooklyn in the morning. And here's my situation. I said, I'm done. It's over. I said, they took all my money, another racketeering case, because they leaned all my bank accounts. I said, you don't beat these cases with a public defender. I spent millions defending myself. I said, I'm done. I said, they can't put me out on the yard. I got everybody looking to kill me. My wife, she's 27 years old. We got two little babies. This girl waited for me all of these years. How's she going to wait for me now? I'm going to lose the girl I did all of this for. So I'm done. At the age of 39, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this 6 by 8 cell. That's it. 
People, I want to tell you something. That was the worst night of my life. You can call me a coward, call me weak, whatever you want, because I felt it. You know, I'll be honest with you. I used to demean people that were suicidal, call them weak. How do you not face up to your troubles? You're weak. I don't do that anymore. I wasn't suicidal that night, but it was so painful for me to even think of my future. I wanted to lay my head on that pillow and just go to sleep and not wake up. It was too painful. The worst emotion in the world, and I felt every emotion from, from ecstasy right down to grief and everything in between, but I tell you, the worst emotion you can ever experience, hopelessness. Terrible. I'm laying on that cot. I just wanted to die. Prison guard walks by my cell, opens the hatch. Francis, you okay? You don't look good. I said, man, get out of here. I don't want to see any of you guys tonight. Leave me alone. He left. Comes back about a minute later. Pushes something through the slot on the door. It falls on the floor. I hear a thump. Kind of groggy. I look down. It was a Bible. I don't want a Bible. I didn't want a Bible. I wanted a bottle of Prozac or something. I want to forget what I was going through. I'm looking down at that Bible. I'm getting so angry, feeling so sorry for myself. I jump off that cot, pick up that Bible, slammed it against that cinder block wall as hard as I could. It's like everything came out of me. Honestly, it took me another minute. I said, you know what? I got nothing but enemies. Only me and God in this cell. I believed in God. I pick up that book. I said, I don't need another enemy. I looked up at that cement ceiling. I said, God, if you're really up there, you need to give me something to make me feel better. I can't deal with this. I need help. I'm holding the book. Remember, I went to Catholic school. We didn't read the Bible. We read the catechism. I'm holding the book. It falls open to the book of Proverbs. Coincidence? I don't think so. Analytical guide, a whole bit. I start reading Proverbs. What a brilliant book. Solomon was brilliant. You know, when God said to Solomon in the book of Kings, nobody before you will ever be as wise, and nobody after you will ever be as wise as a reward for what? What he didn't ask for, with the exception of Jesus, had a little advantage, he was God. Nobody was as brilliant as Solomon. And I'm reading that book, and I'm saying, wow. I'm starting to get a little bit forgetting some of the stuff I'm going through. And then I came to a verse, people, that stopped me cold. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. Now, you know what got me? The enemies part, because I had nothing but enemies. And then it was something brought me back, and it was almost as if the Holy Spirit was standing in front of me. Don't get me wrong. I didn't have a vision. I don't hear God audibly. I don't have that gift. But he speaks to my heart all the time now because I have a relationship with him. And it was almost as if he was standing and saying, who are you kidding? Who are you kidding? You know, you haven't been, your ways haven't been pleasing to the Lord. And it was almost as if I was convicted. I was like looking in the mirror and said, what are you doing? Stop. And it caused me to read on a little bit more. And I came to a verse that's become the verse of my life. And I think it should be the verse of every one of your lives. And I don't want to tell you what to do. But I am a formal mob guy. I have a tendency to do that. <laughs> you know, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Doesn't everything begin with trust, people? Think about it. Lean not on your own understanding, because I guarantee you there will be some things in life you just will not have the answer for. I didn't have the answers that night. In all your ways, acknowledge him, because he's God and he deserves that. And this verse, I looked up the translation. He will, not he can or not he might, he will make your path straight. It's my story, people. Out of desperation, I gave it up to God because I had no other way to go. And he's made my paths a lot straighter than they were before. But when I read that verse, I said, no, God. Trusted my father, took a blood oath, 
I may die in this cell. You got you to gotta show me, man. I'll tell you what happened. The racketeering case fell apart. They were never able to indict me. Praise God. But they did give me four years, the maximum, on the parole violation. I spent 35 more months and 13 days in prison, 29 months and seven days in that hole. Six by eight cell, 24-7, me and God. And people, I want to tell you something. That's not easy. That's not easy. I learned through that experience. We weren't meant to be solo creatures. We were meant to be social. A lot of guys, when those lights went out, I heard a lot of moaning and stuff like that. Tough thing to get through. But you know what I did? I dove into my Bible dove into it. I studied it with a, with a zeal that you can't imagine because I didn't know if I was going to spend the rest of my life there. You know what else I did? I had my wife send me over 400 books on every faith. I studied every faith. I had a Sony Walkman. You young people don't know what that is in this <laughs> digital world, but okay. Every day I would listen to Pastor Greg Laurie. I love Pastor Greg and all these wonderful preachers that know how to interpret scripture for you. Anything that you can get your hands on that, that helps you understand scripture, soak it up. Audio, visual, whatever. Soak it up. We can never get enough. And I came out of there believing with all my heart that the Bible was God's word and that Jesus is my risen Savior. And when I got out, people, I had no clue what I was going to do. God just took it from there. Remember the pastor of my church who well, I hardly knew him. He married us. Dr. Myron Taylor. How do you knew the guy? But he was so good to me, he used to send me books and money in my commissary. I used to tell my wife, why is this guy sending me money? I don't know him. She said, keep quiet. He loves the Lord. Attorney loves you. Buy your soup, whatever you buy in the commissary. Okay. Okay, so when I got out, he was so good to me. He says, Mike, I want you to give your testimony to our congregation. Testimony? I didn't even know what he was talking about. I thought you did that from a witness stand. I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> God has just taken it from there. But I want to end it with this. I, people, I have to apologize we did have my book, Blood Covenant. Guys, you want to read a mob story? It's a mob story. Ladies, it's a love story. A story about me and my wife, how we got together. But we ran out of books in the first service. They, they just bought them all up. But you can go online, michaelfrancis.com. Amazon is even cheaper. If you go online, I'll sign it. If you don't care about that, Amazon. But we do have some of these left, God the Father. This is a ministry tool. I, only, I never do this, but they asked me to do it. Um, I wrote this for people that are really struggling. My heart really went into this book. There's thousands of these in prisons that I've given out all over the country. I think there's a few more left. But read the inside cover. When I walked away in 95, everybody predicted my death. Life magazine, quote, if he holds to what he has promised will mark the first time a high-ranking member of the mafia will publicly walk away from his past and live. Ed McDonald, head of the organized crime strike force, went on national TV in 95, and he said this to the world, quote, I wouldn't want to be in Michael Franzese's shoes. I don't think his life expectancy is very substantial. Very diplomatic for predicting my demise. Bernie Wells, the FBI agent, he followed him to the podium. He wasn't diplomatic. He said straight out, Michael Francis will get whacked. And I think you know what that means in street terms. My mother, God rest her soul, I pray for my son every night. She was so worried for me, being married to my father, knowing the word on the street. She didn't think I was going to survive. That was in 95. In 1975, I told you, Halloween night, I walked into a room, 42 years ago, I believe, with five other gentlemen. Today, I'm the only one alive. Not one of those men died of natural causes. All five of them were murdered. We had a big war in our family in 91, and uh, 13 guys were killed, 29 went to jail, and poor Michael was locked up in a hole. And I think God saved my life during that time. Want a little more proof that when God's got a plan and a purpose for you, nothing stands in the way? 
Fortune magazine, written in 86, 34 years ago, 50 biggest and most powerful mob bosses in the country. Huge article. They featured six of us. I was one of the six. They had a chart, the 50 of us on there, according to rank, wealth, and power. I was number 18 on the list, youngest guy on the list, five behind my friend at the time, John Gotti. John wasn't boss yet. He was number 13. And people don't ask me how they make a list like that. They didn't ask for any of our tax returns, trust me. It was a silly list, but it sold a lot of magazines. But you know what's not silly about that list? Out of that list of 50, some 34 years later, at least 48 are dead. I just heard that maybe the 49th has passed away, dead. And number 50 is here before you for one reason and one reason only, and that's to give praise and honor and glory to my Lord and Savior and my hero in life, Jesus Christ. And what that tells you all is this. When God has got a plan and a purpose for you, and he does for every one of you, nothing is going to stand in the way. No mafia, no La Cosa Nostra, no gang, no addiction, no sickness, no death. Nothing will stand in the way of our God fulfilling his purpose in our lives except for one thing. You know what that is? That's every one of us. Because remember this, people. Our God, our gracious, loving, and merciful God is never an intruder on our life. He's always what? An invited guest. So I'm going to do something now that's probably the most important thing out of all of this Sunday morning service. I'm going to invite Pastor up here today, and he's going to make you an offer that none of you should refuse. God bless you all. Thank you very, very much. God bless. Thank you. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Now, what are we going to do with what we've heard? That's the question we've got to answer right now. Because the reality is we can hear a message, but the message is irrelevant unless we do something with it. And I believe that the message we heard today is, is relevant for each and every one of us, regardless of where we are in our journey with Jesus. There are some of you who... You may know Jesus. Jesus has changed your life. You can, you can look back at the point in time when Jesus became real to you. You established a relationship with him. Something happened. Life happened. Junk happened. And right now you're just not living for him. You're not close to him. That, that relationship is not severed because he'll never sever it. But from your end, it's just not, it's not like it used to be. So what do you need to do? You need to confess that you've moved because God hasn't. And you need to do what you need to do to grow in your relationship with Jesus. You heard, you heard Michael talk about some of the things we need to do. You need to read your Bible. you got to do that. You need to be involved in church. God did not create you to live in isolation. God lived you to cre uh, created you to live with other people. And God established the church so that we can do that with one another. You need to pray, and you need to pray for others. And so if you're here and you already have that relationship with Jesus and, and it's just not where it needs to be, let me encourage you today to, to not leave here without saying today, I'm going to reignite my relationship with my Lord and my Savior. Second group. There are some of you here today who you've given your life to Jesus. 
You've decided to follow him. But you've never made that public. Jesus has called each and every one of us to publicly take a stand for him. When Michael got real in his faith, that's what he did. He drew a line in the sand. He stood up. And just as he did when he was a part of the mob, he made a public stand for Jesus. And there may be some of you here today who have never done that. The Bible way to do that is through baptism. The Bible makes it clear that, that when we give our heart and life to Jesus, we will follow him in baptism. You saw some people get baptized this morning. That's not a Baptist thing. That's not a, a, a Christian thing. That's a Bible thing. Biblically, that's the way that we show that, that the old life has died and, and everything has become new. So maybe you're here today and you need to make that stand. You need to do that. And I know that it's getting late, but, but in just a moment, if that's where you need to take your stand, we'd love to do that today. We've got water in the pool. We've got a change of clothes for you to put on. We've got towels. We've got everything you need. What's stopping you from making your public declaration of faith in Jesus? Like Michael said, it's right here. So in just a minute, we're going to invite you to make that decision. But there's a third group. And that third group are those of you who have not yet made that decision to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you haven't done that because you really haven't chosen to believe that he's real, that he is who he says he is. Maybe it's because there's things in your life that you think are so bad that he would just never forgive you. But I'm here to tell you today that whatever it is that's keeping you from making that decision to follow Jesus is just a tool of the enemy to keep you from experiencing life the way God created you to live. God loves you. God created you for a purpose. And I can tell you right now, regardless of who you are, part of that purpose is to be his child and live with him forever. You don't want to miss that. And so with that said, I want you to bow your head. I want us all to bow our head. And I want us to close our eyes with our head bowed, with our eyes closed. If you're here today and you're saying, Rocky, I need to give my life to Jesus. I'm ready. And I'm going to take that step of faith, place my trust in Jesus. Then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me right now. Dear Jesus, I humbly come before you this morning. Acknowledging that I am a sinner, I've disobeyed you. I've lived life my way. I'm sorry. I don't want to live that way anymore. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth. I believe you lived a perfect life. I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe you rose from the grave defeating sin and death. Today, I'm trusting you to save me. I'm turning from my self-centered, self-ruled life. Jesus, come into my heart and change me. Come into my mind and control me. Make me brand new. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. 
and thank you for saving me. 